If you haven't done so already, you can open your Bibles to uh, Psalm 36. And as Austin was saying to the children, this is a psalm that clearly has three parts. I mean, notice uh, where David begins. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And then he proceeds to describe the wicked in some detail. But in verse 5, his view abruptly changes. He, he, he switches from, from looking at the wicked to looking at the, the Lord. Your, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, he says. Your faithfulness to the clouds. And then the, the steadfast love of the Lord sort of remains his focus through the end of verse 9. And, and when you're reading this psalm, at least for me, when I was reading this psalm for the, for, for the first time trying, this week, trying to re- reflect on it and, and understand what is the, what is the message here, that, that transition from the first part to the second part is, is so abrupt and it's with, with such, uh, without any explanation that it's, that it's hard to understand what David is doing. Why does, does David uh, give us these two portraits, one of the wicked and the other of the Lord. And why does he put these two portraits side by side in this psalm? I think we find our answer actually in the third and final stanza, in verses 10 through 12. Notice what David does there. He calls out to God, Oh, continue your steadfast love towards those who, who know you. And, and he's asking God to continue his, his steadfast love for a very specific reason, so that the hand of the wicked may not prevail against him. He's he's calling out to God uh, to to protect him from the arrogance and from the uh, um, malice of those who have no fear of God before their eyes. You can see the scene in your mind's eye. It's the same scene that we've seen many times as we've worked our way through the Psalter. David is surrounded by enemies. That seems to have been true of him more often than not. He's, he's surrounded by enemies. He is, he is surrounded by wicked men who do not fear God. Men who he's told us in previous psalms are, are telling lies about him and, and plotting against him. But while he acknowledges the reality of the enemies that, that are against him, and while he acknowledges the, the truth of their malice towards him, he does not fixate upon them. He does not allow his mind to simply stop and dwell there, but rather, what does he do? Having seen his enemies, what does he do? He turns his eyes to the Lord. Having seen his enemies, he he turns his eyes to the steadfast love of God, which he tells us is as high as the heavens and as deep as the great ocean. And because he does this, because he turns his eyes from his enemies to the Lord, he is then able, with great hope, to call out to God at the end of the psalm, anticipating his full redemption. He he is able to, to see not only his enemies, he's able to see the Lord, and therefore he has hope, even in the midst of his trial. I want to suggest to you that that is exactly the pattern that we are to follow as believers today. We are to see our enemies clearly. We we are to, to acknowledge the reality of what's going on in the world. But we are not to fixate there. We are not to let our minds stop there. Rather, having seen our enemies, having, having seen those who would, who would do us harm, we are to turn our eyes to the Lord. And having turned our eyes to the Lord, having remembered who He is, we will then be set free to cry out to Him, 
with true and certain hope, the hope that says, my God will deliver me. He is my refuge. He is my Savior. And so to help us get there, to help us end where David ends here in verses 10 through 12, I want us to to look at each part of this psalm in greater detail. Look with me first at verses 1 through 4, where where David describes the wicked. And and it's clear that that David is not pulling any punches here. His his description is is quite provocative. He, He says first that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Think about what that means. You know, the transgression is, is speaking to the wicked. It is, it is whispering to him. It is, it is promising him the things that his heart most desires. Wickedness, trans, transgression, it, it resonates with him. Because it gives him, it promises him that, that he can have what he wants. That's, that's actually what this idea that there being no fear of God before his eyes is, is all about. It is, it is the fear of God uh, that... Um, uh, that, that compels us to, to walk in righteousness, that, that compels us to, to, to honor him as God. Remember what the, the Proverbs tell us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is this, this fear? It's that, it's that proper respect. It is that, that proper honoring of God. It's, it's not, as I've said before, it's not a phobia. It's not a, it's not a, a fear of, of God as if he were arbitrary or if he were malicious. Not, not at all, but rather it is that proper respect of, of God. I've, I've compared it before to the the respect that a, a, a roofer ought to have for gravity or, or to the, the, that an electrician ought to have for, for electricity. This is something powerful. This is, this is something that, that must be respected as it is. You don't fear it. You have no phobia of it, um, but you do not disregard it either. To fear the Lord is to acknowledge him as the Lord, to, to regard him as God. As the maker of heaven and earth, as the sovereign Lord of space and time, as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And thus a proper fear of God leads to wise living, which is godly living. Living in accord with that duty that he requires of man that we we confessed earlier. That's what it means to fear the Lord, but notice the wicked has no fear of the Lord. And therefore he is free, or at least he thinks he is free, to do whatever is right in his own eyes. He he is free to do whatever he thinks advances his own interests, his own self-chosen interest. He's free to do whatever is necessary in the pursuit of his own desires. That's the the nature of, of wickedness. People who are, who are without constraint, people who will do whatever is necessary to get what they want. And we know from experience, we know from having lived in this fallen world, that when people think they have such freedom, they are capable of all manner of unrighteousness. They are capable of all manner, of causing all manner of trouble. That's what David is, is getting at here. He, he, he continues in verse 2 saying, He flatters himself with his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He, he lies to himself. He, he tells himself that there is no God, that, that, that he is not accountable to anyone. There will be no divine consequences for his choices. Now, this doesn't mean that that he disregards all temporal consequences. He he may know how to win friends and influence people. He may have some idea about how to to get ahead in the world. 
but he has no fear of God. He has, he has no sense that there might be a, an eternal uh, um, uh, outcome, that there's no uh, divine consequence for his choices. And so therefore, he believes that he is free to do whatever he can get away with whatever advances his interests in this world. He, he is free from the burden, as he sees it, of acting wisely, of, of doing good, of, of submitting to God's moral duty. He is free, as, as David goes on to say, to lie, cheat, and steal, to, 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 to do whatever he thinks is necessary to get what he wants. And this is what he thinks about all the time. It's what he thinks about when he's lying on his bed at night. He dreams about how to get what he wants. He, he dreams about how to advance his own interests, how to secure his own ambitions. He lies in bed plotting his next wicked scheme, not because he enjoys wickedness per se, but because these wicked schemes are designed to secure for him the deepest desires of his heart. Now we know that, that Paul uses this description to to describe all men without distinction. And, and so Austin is right to, to point the kids and say, listen, you, you need to look at yourself in the light of what Paul is saying here. Because that tendency to, to think uh, that we can do whatever we want to get whatever we want, that is in all of us. None of us is immune. All without distinction are, are sinners in their flesh. All without distinction are, are hostile towards God because they want to do their own thing and will not be ruled by him. We are all, uh, in all of us is that man who shakes his fist in God's face and says, I will not be ruled by you. But what David is calling us here to is not simply to see our own sin. Yes, there is that. We need to be aware of the wickedness that is within us. But here I think David is, is, is also pointing us to the wickedness that is out there. He, he's pointing us to the wickedness that is in the world. Now, we, we don't like doing that very much. <laughs> Uh, we, we get nervous uh, in a church setting about talking about the wicked people out there. because we're, No, 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 we're sinners too. We're, we're sinners too. Uh, and and we, we're afraid that if we, if we talk about the sin that's out there, we might come across as, as holier than thou. We, we might come across as self-righteous. We might come, might come across as, as, uh, as thinking that we're not sinners. Well, let me just say, if you've been here very long, there is no way for you to think that we don't know we're sinners. We confess our sin every Sunday. We, 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 every Sunday we come into the presence of God confessing that we have fallen short, that even though God has lavished his grace on us, even though we have been justified, we are still sinners. We still fall short. We still daily transgress God's law and thought, word, and deed. Paul is not wrong to apply this description to all men, and that includes us. But here, David wants us to see not only that it includes us, but it also includes those who stand against us. It includes the, our neighbors. It includes the, 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 the people who surround us. Again, we, we, we don't feel right pointing out their sinfulness, but, but David says, listen, you need to acknowledge the reality of your situation in this fallen world. You need to acknowledge the reality that there are bad people out there. We teach our kids this, right? When, I was, when my kids were little, we used to use a, a video with them called Stranger Danger. Right? I don't know if you guys ever used that video or not, but we were trying to teach our kids how to interact with 
adults they don't know so that they would not fall victim to the things that wicked people will do in this world. We, we wanted to protect our, our children. We wanted to remind them that there are real dangers out there. We, we didn't want them to be um, you know, just cowering in fear before every adult, but we wanted them to be wise. We wanted them to acknowledge that there was real danger out there, and that is not only for children. The reality is we all live in a world surrounded by neighbors who are sinners. Many of them without Christ and therefore without his renewing grace. And therefore we are surrounded by people to whom transgression speaks deep in their heart. Who are constantly tempted to do whatever they need to do to advance their own interests. And that is a perilous situation. And I think David, in, this, in the first part of the psalm, as he looks out on the horizon, he is leading the people of God to acknowledge the reality of that peril. People who do not fear God can make all kinds of trouble in this world, and they will make all kinds of trouble in this world if they think they can get away with it. By grace, by God's common grace, people are not as bad as they could be. By, by God's common grace, we live in community with one another. By, and by common grace, even those human relationships keep us from, from uh, doing uh, all the evil that our hearts could imagine. But the reality is that apart from God's common, about saving grace, but apart from his renewing grace, each and every one of us, has in, in us that, that wickedness that says, I will do what I want. I will take what I want, regardless of the consequences for others. And that means that in this life, we will be sinned against frequently and regularly by our neighbors. And that's not a newsflash for you. It's not like, oh, is that really going to happen? It has happened. You've, you've known it. You've, you've experienced it. Your neighbors have sinned against you. Maybe it's your literal neighbors. Maybe it's someone at, at work or at, or at school. Maybe it's a, a family member. You know what it is to, to have people who will do you harm in order to advance their own interests. It happens even in the church. We have all been sinned against. Because of the undeniable reality of human sinfulness, we all live at risk all the time. That's the nature of life in this fallen world. We are surrounded by potential threats. People who will sin against us, sometimes in terrible ways, if given the chance. So the question is, how do we respond to that reality? If this is where we live, if we, if we look out on the horizon and we see neighbors to whom uh, transgression speaks deep in their hearts, if we see neighbors who do not fear God, if we see neighbors who have ceased to do good and, and act wisely, if we see neighbors who, who think they can get away with, who will do anything they think they can get away with, how do we respond? Well, there's some who, who choose just simply to deny it. They, they, they decide that they're going to believe in the goodness of man. And that never ends well. One of the reasons that so many of the political solutions suggested over the course of the last 100, 150 years have, have failed so miserably is because they have trusted man to do the right thing. 
It's not who man is apart from Christ. A a naive optimism always ends in disillusionment. But but despair is no better. Sort of a, a fatal pessimism that says, well, there's no hope then. Life is just going to be perpetual misery. That doesn't work either. And so some try to chart a middle way by simply defying the reality of of wickedness in the world. They they try to accrue power to themselves, whether that's financial power or whether that's that's, uh, influence or whether that's political power. They try to get the power themselves so that they can't be sinned against. But of course you see that the person who who goes in that direction, the person who who seeks to to accrue power for himself so that he can't be sinned against, is becoming the wicked. (laughs) Is becoming the one who uses power to oppress others to get what he wants. And so it wouldn't work even if it did work, but it doesn't work. Because there's not enough power in the world to protect yourself against all of the neighbors. As, as the psalmist elsewhere says, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot save. And so what option are we left with? We live in a world surrounded by neighbors who who do not fear God and therefore are are potentially threats against us, people who can can do all manner of of trouble, who who can work all manner of trouble, who can work all manner of wickedness to our demise. What is our hope? Well, we see David turn to it in verses five through six. This is actually a confession of faith. This is, is, again, why we confess our faith every Sunday. What what is David doing here? He is simply reminding himself. He is saying out loud what he knows to be true about God. And what does he know to be true? He knows that his steadfast love extends to the heavens. He knows that his faithfulness extends to the clouds. That that his righteousness is like the mountains of God. His judgments like the, the great deep. That he is the savior of man and beast. That, that steadfast love that David is talking about there is his, his covenant faithfulness, his, his faithfulness to keep all of his promises. His love for his people, his people whom he has chosen for himself, extends to the heavens. Again, it reminds me of the way that we, we talk to our children, does it not? We, we tell them that we love them to the moon and back. What are we trying to communicate to them? What are we trying to, to say to them? We are trying to remind them that, that they cannot reach beyond the, the, the extent of our love for them. That our love for them is, is without limits, without boundaries. And it is solid. It is unshakable. It is as firm as the mountains of God. It is as deep as the ocean. That's the picture that David is, is giving us here of, of, of who God is. He is a God whose faithfulness, whose, whose steadfast love, his, his commitment to his people and to their welfare is absolute. His commitment to establishing righteousness on earth as it is in heaven is absolute. His judgments will stand. His purposes will be worked out. And because God's steadfast love is is immeasurable, because his, His righteousness is unshakable, He is the Savior of all who trust in Him. Even even the animals who simply are what he created them to be. He is for them. But of course, David's focus here is is clearly on God as the Savior of of man. We we see him work that out in verses 7 through 9. 
Notice he turns from, from simply confessing the truth about God to, to acknowledging the way that faithfulness works itself out in the lives of his children. He says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God is our refuge. He is the the mother bird covering over his his children, providing them with with protection from from every threat. He will not let them be harmed. That's the the image here of of coming under the shadow of of our Father's wings. He will not let us be harmed. Harm. But, but notice, God, God's, welfare, or God's commitment to the welfare of his people, God's steadfast love provides more than protection. It, it provides abundance. Notice what David says. He says, they feast on the abundance of your house. That's the image that, that David wants us to see. He wants us to see the children of God, those who, who put their trust in him, feasting on the abundance of his house, drinking deeply from the river of his delights. Just, just let that phrase just soak for a moment. You get to drink deeply from the river of delights because the Lord God is your God. He is your fountain of life. He is your true light. It is, it is a description of, uh, that is really beyond comprehension. It, it, is, it is a picture of God doing for his children more than we could ask or imagine. This is what David wants us to see. He says, yes, you have real enemies, but you need to see the Lord. You need to see the Lord whose steadfast love extends to the heavens, whose whose righteousness is unshakable as the mountains of God. He is your protection. He is your provider. If you've been in church very long, these images are not new to you. You've heard them before. The question this morning is not whether you you know what the Bible has to say about God. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that these things are true? No doubt you've heard the stories of God's abundant provision. You've heard them in the scriptures, of course. Manna in the wilderness feeding Elijah by ravens, saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. We've heard the stories of God's protection and provision. And you probably have heard stories that aren't from the Scriptures, but from your own personal experience. People you know whom God has provided for in ways that are just beyond your imagination. But if we're honest, we have to admit that it can still be hard For us to really fully believe these things about God. It can really be be hard for us to to believe these things fully because while we know the stories of his miraculous provision, we also know stories of times when he didn't seem to provide. In fact, many will tell you that's probably one of the biggest obstacles that people face to faith today. Today is, well, you told me God was going to do this for me, and he didn't. That, that, that personal experience of, of what we perceive as God's failure to be God for us. Just this week, I was listening to a podcast, and one of the, uh, the men on the podcast uh, was, was talking about the danger of this kind of teaching. 
And this is someone who used to believe these things. This is someone who, who used to be an evangelical pastor. In fact, he wasn't just an evangelical pastor. He was a professor who taught evangelical pastors at one of our seminaries. But he said, listen, I just can't believe these things anymore. He says, because it's all fine and good to believe that God is going to protect you and provide for you until he doesn't. And you could just hear the, the hurt and the, the cynicism in his voice as he spoke. We're shocked to hear someone say it out loud, especially when that someone used to be one of us, used to profess to believe these things. But the, but the truth is we have all wrestled with that question in the privacy of our own hearts. All right, God, it's, it's fine to sing this psalm when you're coming through. But what about those days when it doesn't seem that you are? David is calling us to 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 put all our trust in the Lord, and the, the Lord whose, whose steadfast love is immeasurable, whose, whose righteousness is unshakable. But is that really a good idea? Can we really trust Him? That's the question. And of course, I want to say to you this morning, yes. <laughs> yes, you can trust Him. And, and we see this first and, and foremost in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ himself. I, I know it sounds like a Sunday school answer, you know. Well, can we trust him? Yes, Jesus. It sounds like a Sunday school answer, but it's the truth. Paul tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he did not spare his son, but gave him for us all. That is our starting point. That is our foundation. That is our security. Because Paul goes on to say that if God did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us every good thing? God has demonstrated that he is for you. God has demonstrated uh, that he is working for your good. In the person of Jesus Christ, whom he put forward to die for our sins and then rose again for our justification. In Jesus Christ, we have that sure and steady anchor for our faith that we need. And we need to remember that, that Jesus' resurrection reminds us that the, that the salvation that we ultimately hope for, the delights that we ultimately hope for, they are not, um, they, they are through death. Even as Todd prayed it, we, we celebrate because death is gain for the children of God. Yes, we mourn our loss, but we also rejoice to know that one has, has left this evil age and entered into glory. One has left behind their broken body and is now with the Lord awaiting that resurrection when they will receive a body that is undefiled, untouched by sin. But this morning I want you to, to recognize that while our hope is, is through death, while we have a, a hope that is, that is beyond this life, there is a hope for this life, too. Remember what, what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, yes, in the age to come you will have eternal life, but even in this life you will know my delights. Even in this life you will receive a hundred times more. Yes, we will pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, we will experience trials and tribulations. But the Lord is able to comfort us even in the midst of those afflictions. There is a joy 
in the person of the Spirit. There is a, a peace that, that surpasses understanding. There is a contentment that makes no sense to the world that we can have here and now because the Lord's steadfast love reaches to the heavens. This is what David knew in Psalm 23 when he, when he speaks of feasting in the presence of his enemies. His enemies are still there. The threat is still real. And yet he is feasting on the delights of his father's house. That's what Paul knew when he, when he said that, that, yes, my trials are hard, my, my tribulations are many, but I have learned the secret of being content in any and all situations. It, it appears foolishness to the world. It doesn't much look like salvation because it's not the salvation that the, that the wicked desire. It's not the, the salvation that they have set their hearts on. It's not the salvation that they've been plotting to get. But it is a salvation that is not less but more. Far more. Far sweeter. Far deeper. And it is a salvation that is ours even here and now. Yes, we have a hope of eternal life. But here and now, we can know the, the pleasures at his right hand. Here and now, we can know true, unshakable peace, joy indescribable. This is what God offers to those who will put their trust in him. And that's why when we see the wicked who, who threaten us, we must not allow our eyes to stay there, but we must turn our eyes to the Lord. And we must call out to him, even as David does at the end of this psalm. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Continue your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Father, protect me, provide for me, even here and now. Because while it will not be the salvation that the wicked desires, while it will not be the, the salvation that they scheme to obtain for themselves, it is not less but more. God lets his children feast on the abundance of his house. He lets them drink deeply from the river of his delights. And because he allows us to do that, because he allows all who, who turn their eyes to him and, and call upon him for salvation to feast even in the presence of their enemies, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. And we thank you for your grace. Father, these things are hard to believe. Our our eyes are, are so clouded by the, by the sinful desires of this world, Father, that, that we can sometimes not see the salvation that you offer or think that it is, it is somehow less than what you do offer. Father, forgive us for such foolishness and open the eyes of our hearts to see clearly that we might know in full the hope that is ours, the inheritance that is ours, the treasures that are ours, in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you did not spare, but put forward as the sacrifice for our sins. Father God, do this to the praise of your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.